0: Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... Welcome back
1: to the Bullshit Filter, where we filter the bullshit with <laughs> our hands, because we like to roll up our sleeves and get involved. Get into gonna it, f- exactly. We don't fuck around here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, on this episode of the Bullshit Filter... Um, we're going to be picking up the story where we left off last time. We're talking still, we're in the 30s and the 40s. Harry Anslinger is running the Narcotics Bureau of the Treasury Department. We saw in the last episode he was arresting doctors, shutting down clinics, even though it was against the law to do that. Didn't give a fuck, because he had the world by the balls. We saw in the last episode that his guy, Harry's guy, who ran the Bureau in California was actually working for the Chinese mob. Right. Because the Chinese mob liked the fact that clinics were getting shut down. It was good for business. The mob wanted the war on drugs. It was good for their business. And um, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, uh, early on, Harry went after the jazz industry, trying to get the jazz musicians who were smoking the marijuana and using the uh, heroin... To try and um, bust them, but they it failed because they wouldn't rat each other out. But eventually, he picked right. another target, and that's who we're going to talk about uh, today: the jazz and blues legendary singer, Lady Day, aka Billy Holiday. Mm.
0: shall lose so the bible said and it still is news. mama may have papa may have but god bless the child that's got his own that's got his own Empty pockets don't ever make the grade. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. That's got his own. Oh,
1: what a voice she had. That song, but, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. That song she wrote when her mother was hitting her up for money and uh, she refused to give her mother money and her mother you know, was like, I will dis on you. And Billy said, <laughs> God bless, the child has got his own, Mama. And then she went and wrote that song. <laughs>
2: God. You know, since since we've been doing this uh, episode, I've gone and listened to Billie Holiday because I have to admit, I mean, my wife is into her, but i would never really listened to her. And then when you read some stuff, I mean, you don't you don't hear in, in certain ways. If you, um, you don't hear the pain, you don't hear the addiction, you don't hear the physical abuse, the alcoholism when she's on stage. I mean, it's it's just amazing what she can do. Uh, and I told Heather all that stuff and, and it freaked her out because even though she enjoys her music, she didn't know any of her background and it. And she got all worked up for a couple of days. But anyway, so I, I wanted to mention that when Harry got the job in 1930, when he got the top job, he was 38 years old. And because he believed he was on a crusade or whatever you want to call it, um, God was on his side or whatever, he ends up writing a lot of things down. I, I imagine a person like this just has to get this kind of stuff out. Now, writing a lot of stuff down is not really a good idea when you're lying and you know you're making shit up. And in his writings, you if we could go back in time, we would find out that he is becoming obsessed with Billie Holiday, he's obsessed with this hatred of jazz, and I think we said this on a previous episode. I can't remember because even when I dream, Cam, it's it's in your voice. Um, he hated everything about jazz. It was free form. It was relaxed. It was a mixture of music coming from Europe, the Caribbean, and Africa, all coming together in these American jazz clubs. And he just he just had a visceral hatred for it, and he wanted to bring it down. And he just had to find the proper avenue in order to attack this part of black American culture that he absolutely despised.
1: Mm. And uh, he wanted a high-profile victim to, to scare America about the dangers of drugs, and he went after Lady Day. Now, she, yeah. as you mentioned, as you indicated, had a tough fucking life. <laughs> uh... Which I want to tell this story because, like you, actually yeah. like Heather, I'm a fan of Billie Holiday's. Um I'm a fa- I'm a jazz fan. I love jazz, uh, mostly mm-hmm. instrumental jazz. I'm not a big fan of a lot of vocal jazz. There are exceptions, you know. I like Louis Armstrong, and I like Ella Fitzgerald, and I like Billie Holiday, and I like an, right. an Aussie called Vince Jones. There are there are there are jazz singers that I like. A lot of them I find are pretty. Formulaic, though, but there are those that really stand out and have original voices. And Billie Holiday is one of those. But I had, and I knew a little bit that she had a tough life. I didn't know how tough until I got into the story. Right. I also didn't truly appreciate how massively influential she was. Um, right. as, as we will, as I'll mention later on, Frank Sinatra says she influenced him. And we know that wow. Frank then. Influenced everybody. Um, right. So anyway, I'll talk about that later. So she, she was born in 19, 1915 to an unmarried teenage couple, Sarah Fagan and Clarence Holliday. Her father, Clarence, um, left soon afterwards, uh, didn't stick around. He, he was a jazz banjo player. He, he went off on the road and, and that was that. Her mother, Sarah, got kicked out of her parents' home for getting pregnant and moved in with her older, married, half-sister. Um, and then she left to, to go work on the railroads. And so Billy, whose birth name was Eleonora Fagan, mm-hmm. was raised by her... Half her mother's half sister's mother in law. No father, no mother, not even her auntie. She's raised by her half auntie's mother in law. Now, when Eleonora was 10, she was raped by a neighbor. He, uh, would babysit her, look after her. And this one day, her mother Mm. actually came home and uh, found this guy raping her and uh, called the cops. And the cops obviously didn't believe him because he was a white guy. So uh, they they blamed the mother and the daughter. Well, she must have wanted it. Um, Eleonora Billy uh, ended up working a job running errands for a brothel when she was in her tweens, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is in, the, this is in the, the, the late 20s. By the age of 13, she was working as a prostitute in the same Jeez. brothel in Harlem where her mother was also working as a prostitute. I'm waiting to see if you say anything inappropriate there. I'm like, (laughs) no,
2: no, it was, it was right. It was right right there, but no, because now I'm getting sad because I have four daughters. So this is, this is fucked up. makes me want to shoot somebody. You have four?
1: (laughs) When did you get another one?
2: I thought you had three. When? What? Where, Where? Where? What? Between Rachel and Kiki, there's Isabella, who is very shy, and she's an artist, and she stays quiet, and she's bookish or whatever. But no, yeah, she's, she's mine. And um, she just kind of stays <laughs> in the and background, for and everybody else five is years, loud. Knowing you for
1: five years, <laughs> I just find out you've got a kid I didn't know about. What the fuck? Yeah.
2: Isabella. Does Isabella so, listen to the shows? Um, I doubt it. I doubt
1: it. How old, how old is Isabella?
2: Um, she is, oh d- 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 my God, 20.
1: <clears throat> Where does she live?
2: She lives with her sister, Rachel, and they go to school and work, and they're being very diligent young ladies, saving their money, going to school, working. I, I, I did not instill that discipline in them. I'm, I'm glad they got it either internally or from their mother <laughs> or whatever. <clears throat> it didn't <clears throat> come from me.
1: No, we know. We know Anyway. That. Well, send us a photo, man. Um, no, not? I'm just, I'm just taking an interest. Nothing creepy about it. Jeez. no, no, Jesus, no.
2: Okay, I have four Can daughters you- and one son that no. I know of.
1: <laughs> well, I'm so shocked. I was Randy. I was Randy, <laughs> in
2: my my younger. So year.
1: shocked to know that you've got a daughter that I never heard of before that you've never mentioned
3: in She's all of our a time play. together.
1: No, but you've never mentioned her. I'm okay. not talking about her. You've never mentioned right.
2: Isabella. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, she just... Oh, shit. I don't know. Wow. She's okay. in her own world, and she, she basically, she's wow. a lot like you. She just, the world can kiss my ass, and right. she doesn't care for any kind of convention. Right. Okay. Well, back
1: to uh, <laughs> prostitute, mother and daughter prostitute teams in Harlem. Yeah. Um, Right now, around right about the same time that she was working as a prostitute, um, Eleonora, um started singing in clubs in Harlem. Mm-hmm. She she would just, uh, uh, I think, sing while she was banging Johns and and doing things around brothels. And somebody said, "Hey, you got a good voice? You should get up on the piano and knock out a tune." And she did, and 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 she started becoming very popular. At a very young age. She took the name Billy from an actress that she admired and the name Holiday obviously was her father's name. Now, she was discovered um, by the legendary Columbia Records music producer John Hammond. I don't know if you've ever heard nice. of John Hammond before, folks, but mm-hmm. this guy was like the cornerstone of the American music business for decades. Um, absolutely one of the most influential guys in the music business, um, he sort of discovered her and and signed her up. She made a recording debut at age 18 in November 1933 oh with Benny Goodman, uh, the famous American jazz clarinetist and band leader yeah. known as the King of Swing, um, John Hammond had discovered Benny Goodman as well, so uh, and sort of produced Benny Goodman stuff, so he 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 could get her in there. And um, Benny Goodman and Billie Holiday recorded two songs. One was a hit in 1933, and I want to play that now. It's called "Riffin' the Scotch." The idea, um, interesting yeah. that song, Riffin the Scotch. So they've just come out. It's 1933. America's just come out of prohibition, thanks to FDR. Mm-hmm. So you would yeah. assume Ooh. that Scotch means the drink, but then they play Scottish Highland music um, because I think Benny Goodman was the one, and he wanted to chop the heads off of uh, all of his competitors so he could absorb their energy. But then, and it's a very happy, upbeat kind of music. It's a Highlander reference, so fucking keep up. And then, uh, but the lyrics are are terribly sad. I jumped out of the frying pan right into the fire when I lost me a cheating man and got a no count liar. Swapped the old one for a new one, now the new one's breaking my heart. I jumped out of the frying pan right into the fire. Got nothing to do with booze or being Scottish unless, I don't know. Her cheating man, or a no count liar as a Scotsman, but anyway, right. for whatever reason, it was a big hit. Um, by the way, f- one of the writers of that yeah. one of the writers of that track was a guy by the name of Johnny Mercer. Um, I don't know if you, you you've uh, familiar with Johnny Mercer. I've
2: heard the name,
1: Ray. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, big, big uh, hit. Wrote, like, just a fucking ton of hit songs. Um, ton. Spell that? Um, I'm an old cow... <laughs> I'm an old cow hand from the Rio Grande. Um, wrote a bunch of hits for <laughs> uh, 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 Louis Armstrong. Jeepers, Creepers... Wrote stuff for Bing Crosby and Count Basie. uh, Wrote songs that uh, 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 Frank Sinatra is saying, Day in, Day Out, Come Rain or Come Shine. One for my baby and one more for the road. (laughs) Probably Frank Sinatra's greatest uh, song, one of his greatest songs, anyway. uh, Yeah, so just one of these guys that just wrote like a thousand hit songs. Um, for musicals, Something's Gotta Give, Uh, Moon River. He wrote the lyrics for Moon Mm. River for Audrey Hepburn and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, Shrade, another Audrey Hepburn thing. Just, you know, fucking just killed it, man. Killed it.
2: When when you were talking about the uh, the lyrics for that song, that just reminded me that yeah, when she was very young teenager, she became a prostitute. Somewhere around the age of fourteen, she gets her own pimp, Louis McKay, and that's a name you're going to want to remember, Louis McKay. But as he became her pimp or boss, whatever, he immediately starts to beat her. So again, she can't even get uh, someone who will organize her work but at the same time maybe protect her he was he was beating her as well so her life has been shit from day one and when i was think when you were saying those lyrics i just imagined her tr- you know trying to get out from under him to go to someone else but she has had no good experience with any man um except for some of these uh singers and arrangers she just cannot get she can just not get a break and she her life is just crap up until this point
1: uh pretty much stays crap it stays crap yeah. um yeah. she makes a lot of money but yeah now, she quickly becomes a sensation. Remember, so this is 1933. FDR's elected. Great Depression is going on. Prohibition's ending. Harry Ensling is trying to make the transition from oppressing drinkers of booze to oppressing users of drugs. And as I said before, Billy is one of the greatest vocalists ever, right up there with Sinatra, who was also born in 1915, mm. and her great rival Ella Fitzgerald, who was born in 1917. They had a really interesting sort of war, her and Ella Fitzgerald. I think it was a friendly war, but they they were the singers for two separate bands for years, and they would have like battle of the bands things where they would go up against each other and all this kind of stuff. I I think they they ended up quite good friends, but they were uh, uh, competitors in the the scene. In Sinatra, as I uh, indicated earlier, in 1958, Sinatra said, With few exceptions, every major pop singer in the United States during her generation has been touched in some way by her genius. It is Billie Holiday who was and still remains the greatest single musical influence on me. Lady Day is unquestionably the most important influence on American popular singing in the last 20 years.
2: That's saying something.
1: So for Frank Sinatra to say that is uh, is huge. But her life was still hard going. She had been addicted to booze and to drugs since her early teenage years. You know, that happens when you know, she had a fucked up upbringing. She gets raped and then she becomes a prostitute. So yeah. n- no surprise. Yeah.
2: And she was tough as nails. Do you have some of the stories about uh, how tough she was? (laughs) Yeah, so I just wanted to mention real quick, so as you can imagine early on, she gets arrested. um, uh, And you you were touching on this. She gets arrested for prostitution. She goes to jail. She gets turned on to hardcore drugs. Uh, white Lightning 70 Proof Alcohol. She switches to heroines. Uh, I, I just want to mention one one story because I thought this was something that would be amazing. So one New Year's Eve, a sailor at the bar makes a comment about black people being served at the bar and she stabs a bottle into his face because he used the n-word or whatever. So so again this woman doesn't take shit off anybody and there's a quote, I don't have it, I remember reading it and I don't remember when she said it but she said at some point in her life and I think this was very young when she after she was raped, she was sent to a reform school. And the nuns were really mean to her, and they beat her. And they, at one point, to teach her a lesson, they stuck her in a room with a corpse to try to break her spirit. And she said something like, I, w- I decided I would never say anything unless I really meant it. So for a lot of people, when I didn't say thank you to them, it's because I really didn't, didn't want to thank them. So she was this hardcore person who wasn't taking shit off of anybody. But to stab a bottle into a guy's face because he calls you uh, an, uh. Uh, inward. I mean, it, this woman is just tough as shit. And just to make life even harder, not only is her pimp beating her, but later on her ma- her manager, her husband, uh, he's going to steal money from her throughout her entire career. And he's still beating her. She's not just beat when she's a child. She's beat as a grown woman in between per- uh, performances.
3: I'm tough.
1: When my girlfriend says she doesn't want to see me anymore, I just poke her in the eyes.
3: I'm
2: tough. I'm into punk yoga. That's where you stand on somebody else's head. When I get into a cab and the cab driver says, where are you going? I say, none of your business, pal. I'm tough. You know what I have for breakfast? Anything I want, pal. My rice bubbles are too scared to go snap, crack and pop. They just sit in the pack and go, shh, here he comes. Think about it. I'm tough. I'm so tough. I wasn't breastfed when I was
1: a baby. I went straight on to cappuccinos. Wow, that has not aged well. (laughs)
2: Wow. (laughs) He was trying. He was trying.
1: Australian stand up comic George Smilevici. I think there was a big hit here. Uh, Like it was a number one single in the top 40. In, in the early 80s, he uh, wasn't funny then and <laughs> didn't age well either. <laughs> um, <laughs> she was tough. Yeah, uh, I won't be as scared of saying the N-word as you say, uh, as you put it. Uh, one New year's Eve, a Sailor saw her being served in a bar and said, when did you start serving nigger bitches? That's <sighs> yeah. when she stabbed a broken bottle into his face. Mm. Another time in a bar, a group of soldiers and sailors started stubbing out their cigarettes on her mink Oh, fuck! She, hand, she handed the coat to a friend picked up uh, an ashtray and smacked him in the head with it and laid him out flat
2: <laughs> and it's not like she was this big giant 300 pound woman I mean she was a, a tiny thing but she wasn't taking shit off anybody
1: I like this line about her somebody wrote she sang a moment behind the beat and lived a moment ahead of it
2: Oh, that's cool. Poetry. So she becomes
1: a sensation, and, and Harry is looking for a headline. And he hears that she's a drug user. Mm-hmm. So she's two things he doesn't like black and a drug addict. And a jazz. Singer. So he sends one of his oh, three things he doesn't like, <laughs> a, and a woman. And a woman. Four, four things.
2: Okay. Because- and she's above her station. <laughs> she's above her station. <laughs> Five things. Five things!
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Harry sends one of his agents. Now, this guy is special or different or unusual for one of Harry's agents because he's black. Right. Harry Harry didn't like hiring black guys. No. But you can't really send a white guy into Harlem. No. It'd be like sending you, Ray, to a Harlem Globetrotter convention. I mean, he's going to stand out. Yeah, yeah. So, By the way, the Harlem Globetrotters are coming to Brisbane in a couple of months. I'm going to go. Nice. I'm going to get tickets and go take Fox. I reckon he's going to love it. Um, But, you know, so Harry hired this guy. This guy's name was Jimmy Fletcher. But Harry had a policy. A black agent could never be a white agent's boss. Right. Because, come on, it's uh, the 40s by this time and uh, this is America. Right. We can't can't have a black guy giving orders to a white guy. Where, Where will things end up here?
2: Everybody has to know their So place. he'd let them
1: into the Bureau. He'd let the black guys into the Bureau, but they'd never get promoted off the street. Now, mm-hmm. Jimmy, this is the agent, Jimmy Fletcher, he's allowed to carry drugs. He's even allowed to sell drugs right? to win the confidence of the targets that he's going after. Entrapment? Um, in order to entrap them, yes. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, he even... <laughs> He's even allowed to tie you down and inject you with drugs and then say, look, you're a drug user, you're going to jail. I don't know about that bit. <laughs> right. So Jimmy, Jimmy approaches Billy, starts getting in close with her, goes to parties, gets himself invited to parties where she's going to be, starts to get to know her a little bit, starts to get her confidence mm-hmm. Um, watches her drinking, snorting cocaine at parties. And then one day he goes to her apartment, knocks on the door, pretends he's got a telegram to deliver. She yells out, stick it under the door. He says, it's too big to go under the door. She said, I'm talking about the telegram, not your schlong (laughs) and your schwanz." And uh, anyway, she lets him in. And she's alone and Jimmy starts to feel uncomfortable for some reason. He, he starts, he's developed feelings for her. Right. He says, Billy, why don't you make short of this and if you've got anything, just turn it over to us. Then we won't be searching around, pulling at your clothes and everything. Just just cooperate. Yeah. But by that time, his partner had arrived and they sent for a police woman to conduct a body search. Oh. Billy says, you don't have to do that. I'll strip. All I want to know is, if will you search me and let me go? All that policewoman's going to do is look up my pussy. Damn. Is what she actually said. Right. So she stripped and stood there in front of them and then pissed
2: <laughs> in front of them.
1: Oh to There's prove more- she
2: wasn't hiding anything. It's either a bottle, an ashtray, or her own urine, but she will give it to you good.
1: so yeah uh i don't know she's 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 uh hardcore this woman yeah um yeah yeah. she's pissing on the floor
2: in front of them (laughs) have you ever peed in front of anybody besides me Um, we can edit that I out.
1: decline to answer that I want to take the fifth I want to take the fifth on that um, <laughs>
2: Look Too much know, All
1: I want to say is uh, uh, The steel dossier May or may not contain Evidence that uh, I and several Russian prostitutes Peed on your current President, um, I don't want to <laughs> confirm or deny at this stage right. without my lawyer or, Michael Cohen or brag. being president. Yeah. How fucking funny is it? How funny? How funny is it that Michael Cohen client, one of his clients or not clients, depending on how you want to define it, was Sean Hannity? Oh my I love god! That shit. So yeah. good. Yeah, that story. <laughs> Did you see Colbert talking about it? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh, that was so good. Anywho. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, a woman's urine doesn't come from her vagina, but I don't know if Jimmy Fletcher knew that. (laughs) He Um, doesn't. But anyway, I think that's why she was peeing. Maybe it was just to say, listen, there's nothing up there, or maybe it was just to say, you know, fuck you. Watch this. Right. Um, Now, Jimmy apparently felt bad for her and... um, offered to talk to Harry privately to get her off, but he failed. And apparently he regretted it for the rest of his life. Um, So this is happening in the late 40s, uh, towards the end of her life and career when she finally gets arrested. Um, She gets sent to prison. She's um, banned from performing as a result of that when she got out because she's a felon and she's not allowed to work anywhere that served alcohol. Which, of course, included all of the jazz clubs. Right. And uh, so her life is somewhat ruined. She had a series of abusive boyfriends and husbands over the course of her life, as you said, Louis McKay being one of those. Most of her boyfriends and husbands were mostly pimps and mafia hoods, including Louis McKay, who you mentioned earlier, who used to beat her before she went on stage, even broke her ribs once. Yeah. And when she finally dumped his ass and he heard that Harry had taken an interest in her, he went to see Harry and offered to set her up to be arrested. God. Um, He said, how come I got to take this from this bitch here, this low-class bitch? If I got a whore, I got some money from her, I don't have nothing to do with the bitch. I don't want no cunt, is literally what Louis said, not to Harry but to someone else who... um, Record, recorded it and reported on it.
2: So they worked together to get so, her arrested.
1: Yeah, so Louis went to Harry said, She's been getting away with too much shit. Holiday's ass is in the gutter in the East River. I got enough to finish her off, he told Harry. I gotta do her up so goddamn bad, she's gonna remember as long as she live. <sighs> so, uh... Hell hath no fury like a pimp scorned, I think is uh, how...
2: I have a t shirt with that on there. Says it, I think.
1: I think that's what Jesus wrote in his own blood in the Declaration of Independence. It's one of the uh, things in there. No. So, um, yeah, he agreed to set her up. Um, So she was arrested and put on trial, sentenced to a year in a West Virginia prison. Mm. Now, of all the prisons that you can go to in the United States in the 1940s, thinking west virginia is probably right down towards the bottom somewhere
2: <laughs> right D- did was there did you find out why she was sent to that particular prison no just did you? no it just, just doesn't make any sense unless they were like you're oh. kind of intimating hint um purposefully making her life even harder because yeah that's gonna suck
1: it is gonna suck she was forced to go cold turkey while in the prison. Um, forced to work during the days cleaning a pigsty, amongst other places. Um, so, you, like, keep in mind that at the time of her arrest, she was a superstar, like a genuine fucking yeah. superstar, top of the top of the tree, beloved, big big recording star, hit albums, singing, touring. Yeah, she had a drug problem, um, but she was a superstar. She was fucking Beyonce of the Beyonce of her day, and she gets forced to clean pigsties for a year in a prison.
2: I just wanted to mention that because of her tough her tough ways, when she's um, when she's arrested, she says the the case was called the United States of America versus Billie Holiday, and that's just the way it felt. She felt like the entire world was after her. She had no one to turn to, and I can't remember if you already told the story about Judy Garland and the Washington Society hostess who had similar addictions.
1: No, I was going to get to that in a second, but um, oh, sorry, yeah, um, that's all right. Uh, but I was just going to say before we get to that, when when Billy wrote her autobiography years later, she um, tracked Bill, Jimmy Fletcher down and sent him a signed copy. Oh, and she wrote she wrote inside of it, most federal agents are nice people. They've got a dirty job to do, and they have to do it. Some of the nicer ones have feelings enough to hate themselves sometimes for what they have to do. Maybe they would have been kinder to me if they'd been nasty. Then I wouldn't have trusted them enough to believe what they told me.
2: Damn. That's a bottle to the face. So he obviously told... Yeah. It sounds
1: like, well, it sounds like he was nice, he liked her, he told her he was going to do right by her and get her off... And then he failed, built her hopes up, and then let her down. And uh, anyway, apparently he never stopped feeling guilty about what he'd done to her. Um, Yeah, so uh, as you were saying, though, Harry also had dealings with other drug addicts, heroin addicts, that were superstars, but he treated them a little bit differently. Yeah, You tell the story
2: well i don 't have a lot of details, just that he heard about judy garland 's addiction, and there was a Washington Society hostess and so I think there was a series of phone calls or conversations where he 's showing them compassion he 's talking to them he 's you know trying to tell them to get help or whatever so again, the color of their skin, the profession they 're in they 're not doing jazz or whatever but he but he um, is able to what uh, however you you want to describe this he 's able to get over himself and his crusade as he probably sees it. And he helps these people who look a lot like him. uh, And he doesn't arrest them. He doesn't bust them. He doesn't harass them. He doesn't go after them. He just gives them advice, shows them the compassion, and sends them on their way.
1: Yeah, when he heard that Judy Garland was a heroin addict, he um, invited her to come and have a sit down with him. They had a friendly chat. He advised her to take longer vacations between pictures. He wrote a personal mm. letter to the studio assuring them that she didn't have a drug problem at all. Damn. So he lied and covered her ass and protected her, basically. And the um, Washington Society hostess you mentioned, he found out she was taking drugs. Um, he said he couldn't arrest her because she was a beautiful, gracious lady and it would destroy the unblemished reputation of one of the nation's most honored families.
2: Fuck <laughs> you. So
1: he helped her her wean herself off her addiction slowly without her being arrested. So he had one approach for white people and one approach for black people. Um, Good old
2: Harry. (laughs) Or one approach for white people and one approach for everyone else. The Mexicans, the Chinese, everybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But as someone said once, you can be a great surfer, but you still need a great wave. And, and Harry had a great wave. Yes, he partially created it, but it also was existing. It was this great panic about uh, drugs in America that had sprung up almost out of nowhere uh, from you know the early teens onwards, mm-hmm. certainly after the uh, Prohibition ended. People needed – they needed an enemy, someone to be scared Someone to feel better than. Because fear sells newspapers. Oh, yeah, that's another thing, quite possibly. You know, Mary – and again, as I mentioned, I think, in a much earlier episode, so you had – in in the late 19th century, you had – the, the the emancipation of the black Americans after the Civil mm-hmm. War. Um, and then here we are 50, 60, 70 years later. Um, the, the, after the emancipation, there was no reparations made to the, the, the former slaves or the families of former slaves in America. mm mm-hmm. um, what what should have happened if America was a decent country? What should have happened is they would have said, okay, well, we did you and your ancestors wrongly. Uh, here's a shit ton of money, and use that to you know get, build yourself up, or do what they did for the, the GIs coming home from yeah. World War II. Here's a free right. education. Go here, go to college, get a free education, right? You've been wrongly treated by this country. And this country didn't just treat you wrongly, but built its wealth, the wealth of many of the great families, the white families that are the economic backbone of the country, going back to the founding fathers, the original tax dodgers, (laughs) and onwards, was built by slaves. (laughs) Um, So reparations should have been paid. Listen okay, here's here's, here's money, here are land grants, here's free college education. By the way, you don't have to pay tax for 100 years, you and your your, your ancestors. Um, There's going to be special legal protection for you to enable you to get on your feet as Hmm. a people. Because after several hundred years of being slaves and having segregation well they had to, there should have been laws against that as well special protection none of that happened it was like well fuck shit okay off you go good luck god bless have a good yeah. time uh, it was shit shitty <laughs> shit shit mcshitterton <laughs> is the way it was handled same as the treatment of the native americans right. at least they got casinos at some point thrown in but still shitty so um uh, and America, So America's scared, starting to get scared of these black people, particularly the ones that are rebelling against the way they've been treated. Mm-hmm. And and white Americans didn't uh, want to accept that black Americans might be rebelling because they had shitty lives like Billy Holiday's, locked into slums, banned from de- developing their talents, uh, in many parts of the US still at this stage, uh, living under segregation, not able to get certain jobs in certain industries, not able to get an education, you know by going to college and all that kind of stuff. So it was more I think it was more comforting for white Americans to believe that marijuana or or, or cocaine or heroin was the reason the black mm, people were angry, and that getting rid of the drugs would render the blacks and the Mexicans and the Chinese docile and on their knees where they belong uh, and subservient once again. And also, as we've seen in previous episodes, It was known at the beginning of the 20th century that the the black communities and the Mexican communities were using marijuana in particular and some of the other drugs. So if you could make those things illegal, it was easy to put the blacks and the Mexicans into jail and stop them from voting, particularly in the South, um, against... Things like segregation mm-hmm. and other practices that were keeping them down, uh, felony disenfranchisement that we've talked about in previous episodes. And so there was a, there was this wave of fear, and we've seen that the newspapers uh, supported that, politicians across the board supported that. There were the rare exceptions like the John Coffey and the Henry Smith-Williams that fought against it, but by and large, everyone bought into that narrative.
2: Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that uh, white America was more than willing to meet Harry, Harry's interpretation of history, more, meet him more than halfway because they wanted to believe it for the for the reasons that you just said. And yeah, it's, and it's just once you start that, it's easy to throw in the Mexicans and the Chinese with the blacks. And it's just just all of them need to learn their place. And then everybody can get along as long as they learn that they're and accept that they're second class citizens and they don't push the edge, don't push the envelope, don't push our comfort zone. Everything will be OK.
1: And nothing much has changed in the intervening 90 years. No. Um, in 2016, there were almost 600,000 marijuana arrests in the United States. Mm. More than for all violent crimes combined. Yeah. Jeez. And the majority of those were arrests for low-level possession of marijuana and, of course, the arrest disproportionately affected minorities. Now official statistics in the US show that marijuana use is roughly at the same rate across different demographics, ethnic demographics, but the non-white racial minorities are more likely to get arrested and face punishment. According to the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, between 2001 and 2010, African-Americans were arrested for marijuana possession at almost four times the rate of whites, Jeez. despite equal usage across right. white and black They're Americans.
2: They're being targeted. And another thing I found from the, um, from the Drug Policy Alliance in in 2016. Just over two hundred thousand people in this country had their student loan, their their uh, their federal financial aid eligibility taken from them for minor drug possession convictions. So again, people trying to get an education, trying to better their lives, maybe smoking a little bit on the weekend to try to stress out from all, relax from all the studying, get arrested, and they lose their ability to help to to borrow money to pay for college. So again, just cross the board. No common sense being used, destroying lives, all because of people like Harry Anslinger who have built up this belief that all this stuff is evil and we have to wipe it out no matter what. We're still, like you were saying earlier, we're still living with his legacy. So not only
1: will having a prison record make it hard to get a a student loan, but it also, as we've seen uh, in the past, in past episodes, it can block your ability to get a housing Mm -hmm. loan. Or to get housing, to get accepted even to rent a place if you've got a prison record. It can make it difficult, obviously, to get employment. So then, you know, that fucks that generation and their children for another generation. Like, the the can has been kicked down the road from emancipation onwards, just fucking up each successive generation with laws and restrictions, at least in part deliberately designed... To keep the non-whites politically down, economically and politically uh, dis... dis, what's the word I'm looking for? Disenfranchised? No, uh, at a disadvantage. Disadvantaged.
2: But see, and these people, how are they supposed to live for the next 50, 60 years if they can't get a good job, if they can't get a decent home, if they can't get an education? What the fuck are they supposed to? Are they supposed to just die and go away? That's what I don't get. How can these people not see that they're creating so many more problems? And just like the people with uh, Harry Anslinger, they're creating a base of people who are going to have to do whatever they have to do to get the money for drugs and that and that means turning to crime you are literally creating criminals because people are desperate and we're still doing it today
3: cruising down the street in my six four jocking the freaks clocking the door went to the park to get the scoop knuckleheads out there cold shooting some hoop. a car pulls up who can it be a fresh el camino rolling kilo g he rolled down his window and he started to say it's all about making that GT. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard. You come talking to trash, we'll pull your car. Knowing nothing in life but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy, cause I ain't said shit. <laughs> What. Donald B in the place to give me the pace. You say my man JD is on free base. The boy JD was a friend of mine till I caught him in my car trying to steal an Alpine. Taste him up the street to call a truce. The city clock head pulls out a deuce-deuce. Little did he know I had a loaded 12-gauge. One sucker did LA Times front page. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard. You come talking to trash, we'll pull your guard. Knowing nothing in life but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy, cause I ain't said shit.
1: Easy A. Jesus. <laughs> Cruising down the street in my 6-4. Jockin' the freaks, clockin' the dough. Um you know the, the 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 you know you look at uh, and this again you, you fans of the wire know how this works but you, you've got generation after generation post emancipation emancipation of 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 the the Af, uh, african americans that have been disadvantaged from the get go and uh, it just gets passed on from generation to generation until yeah. you've got poor kids growing up in the hood in places like Baltimore, with no real um, great typically parental guidance, dads in jail, mums in jail, one or both are drug addicts. Um, so they they're fucked from the get go. They 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 have, uh, school doesn't resonate with them because they really don't expect to live long. Um, they got to make some money to and make it quick because the parents aren't making any money. So they end up working on the street, um, selling drugs and uh, get caught up in their life. And it just gets passed on, man, from generation to generation because it wasn't done properly in the first place by Lincoln. Lincoln fucked African-Americans. Um, he, he had an opportunity to do the right thing and he didn't. So fuck Abraham well, Lincoln is my uh, is my thing well he there.
2: he did die prematurely. He half did the job. What about the people that came after him? Also, they I think they deserve it even more because he does end up you know taking one in the back of the head um, at Ford's Theater. So, but certainly the administrations that came after him did not do enough.
1: Yeah. None of them have up until this very Absol- day. As,
2: as, as we're throwing out stats, let me just throw out one that really, that really stood with me. Massachusetts voted to legalize marijuana, which, was going, which took effect in December of 2016. But obviously for the year of 2016, there's still have a whole bunch of arrests going on. And this just absolutely floored me. 28.9% of those arrested for marijuana possession in 2016 were black. The blacks represent 8.6% of the state's population. So there's only 8.6 of them in the state, but 28.9% of those arrested were black. I mean, you have literally got to be targeting these people in order to get stats like that. I mean, it's, it's just so blatant, but I guess it keeps white America feeling safe or whatever. I don't know. Or they don't care because it's not hurting them. But just staggering statistics like that, it's just, it's, it's, it's obviously a culture war against the minorities. And you're able to
1: then... You know, the media is full of stories of black drug dealers doing this or doing that and, and ah. black drug users, so you're able to continue to demonise them and, and, and justify the fact that uh, uh, socioeconomically they may be done. You go, well, yeah, the, the, but that's because they're a bunch of drug criminals, drug-using criminals, right? Uh, it makes it easier to, to justify doing nothing, it happens as always. I'm not just beating up in America here. It's just the biggest and easiest example that we're all familiar with. But I could point to Australia in the same way. A treatment of our indigenous population has been horrendous over the last 230 years. And uh, but but you know I'll get into conversations with white Australians on a regular basis. Where they'll go, oh, you know, fuck the Aboriginals, man. They just, you know, you go out to Northern Territory or to Perth or regional Queensland, where a lot of the mining uh, happens, and these guys are just fucking lazy. They do nothing. They snort petrol. Um, they, 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 you know, treat their women like shit. There's a lot of alcoholism uh, and, and problems. And and yeah, some of that may be true, but you go, well, fucking what, what? What's the background to that? What's the root cause of that? How have they and their ancestors been treated over the last 250 years? You know, it, it, it's it been a fucking disaster. It's been a travesty. And you mm-hmm. can't expect... Look, I grew up. I grew up in a house, as you know, with, with, uh, that was below the poverty line and with an alcoholic, abusive father. Mm-hmm. Um. I know what it's like, just as as like one generation removed from that. How hard it is to pull yourself out of that scenario, pull yourself out by your bootstraps um, when that's been your upbringing. When you when you as a kid, when you've been you know beaten. I don't want to over exaggerate it. I wasn't in hospital from that anyway, but. You know, I I was covered in bruises on on several occasions from my father beating me up. Um, Being beaten, kept down, verbally, emotionally abused by one of your parental units. To pull yourself out of that, you know, takes a lot. You know, there's PTSD, there's psychological and emotional damage that comes out of that. You find that there's usually generational repercussions. Most people that grow up, with parents below the poverty line don't get an education that have drug or alcohol addiction problems don't you know manage to pull themselves out of it if the family does it's a it's a it's a slow generational haul so usually maybe if you're lucky the next generation won't drink or won't do drugs and and will basically keep a roof over their heads and let their kids get a good education then those kids the second, third generation, yeah. have an opportunity maybe to go to uni and get an education and get a good career and pull themselves out of it. Um, but when you've got generation after generation after generation of this, of, of poverty, living in um, in slums, uh, being treated uh, as scum by the majority of the population, uh, in equal access to, to education or employment opportunities, you um, because of either legislation or because of just inherent cultural bias and and racism, it's incredibly difficult. And I just don't think enough people, either here or in the US, really spend the time thinking deeply about how that gets passed on from generation to generation. There's this idea of, well, you should just fucking, you know, it's a free country, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, stop, stop... Stop being a you know a snowflake and uh, <laughs> uh, you know yeah exactly exactly all that kind yeah. of shit. Um, now just to wrap up, uh, I want to talk about a guy called Donald Tashkin, mm. who wins our cunt of the cunt of the uh, year award. <laughs> um, marijuana. You will see lots of places that marijuana still today gets demonised, including the the claim that it will give you cancer. I've even read stuff published in the last year Mm -hmm. that says it's worse than tobacco cigarettes in terms of giving you cancer. Right. Now, the main guy behind this story is Donald Tashkin from the University of California. He's a pulmonologist who studied marijuana for 30 years. Oh, wow. And he spent most of that 30 years trying to prove marijuana causes cancer. Um, And talking about it all that time, convinced that it caused cancer. He's the guy that everyone refers to. Unfortunately for Mr. Tashkin, Dr. Tashkin, after the largest and most extensive study ever done that he led... He ter- determined that marijuana not only does not cause cancer... Right. ...but it even might have anti-cancer properties. Oh God. I bet he's pissed. He said, we hypothesized that there would be a positive association be- between marijuana use and lung cancer, and that the association would be more positive with heavier use. Instead, what we found was no association at all and even a suggestion of some protective effect. Oh, my God. Smoke weed and don't get cancer. I'm on it. That should be the marketing tagline. (laughs) So thanks very much, Donald Tashkin, for 30 years of spreading that bullshit rumour.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There was a a thing on um Yahoo News today. I'm looking for it now but I can't find it shit. It was saying that the worst and and, and you never know what you know because every time there's a, a, a scientific survey or whatever there's information changes but it was saying that like the worst things that people think of when it comes to the ill effects of marijuana um uh, cannabis um uh, memory and that kind of stuff they said that pretty much leaves the body after 72 hours if I find it I'll put it on the Facebook page of the bullshit filter but it was saying a lot of the things that people are concerned about you know it happens while you're under the influence but then it goes away if you give the body enough time it purges the system I'll try to find that and put that on the Facebook uh, page because I can't find it right now
1: interesting so getting back to Billie Holiday for a second uh, just to wrap up in early 1959, um, after 12, 13 years of being harassed by Harry's agents and uh, put in jail, banned from singing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm-hmm. um, Billy went into into hospital at age 44 for cirrhosis of the liver. Oh. Harry had her arrested and handcuffed for drug possession as she lay dying in her hospital room. Yeah. While she was in her hospital room, the room was raided for drugs and she was placed under a police guard. She died a few weeks later. Gilbert Milstein of the New York Times who was the announcer at her 1956 Carnegie Hall concert, wrote part of the sleeve notes for the album that came out after her death called The Essential Billie Holiday. came out in 1961. Mm -hmm. He wrote, and this is where we'll wrap it up, Billie Holiday died in Metropolitan Hospital, New York, on Friday, July 17, 1959 in the bed in which she had been arrested for illegal possession of narcotics a little month a little more than a month before as she lay mortally ill in the room from which a police guard had been removed by court order only a few hours before her death which like her life was disorderly and pitiful She had been strikingly beautiful, but she was wasted physically to a small, grotesque caricature of herself. The worms of every kind of excess, drugs were only one, had eaten her. The likelihood exists that among the last thoughts of this cynical, sentimental, profane, generous, and greatly talented woman of 44 was the belief that she was to be arraigned the following morning. She would have been eventually, although possibly not that quickly. In any case, she removed herself finally from the jurisdiction of any court here below. Gonna finish with a song. Mm-hmm.
0: Shadows I live with are numberless. Little white flowers will never awaken you. Not where the black coach of sorrow has taken you. Angels have no thought of ever returning you. Would they be angry If I thought of joining you? Gloomy Sunday Gloomy Sunday With shadows I spend it all My heart and I have decided to end it all Soon there'll be candles And prayers that are said. I know Let them not weep Let them know that I'm glad to go Death is no dream For in death I'm caressing